If you'll turn with me to 1st John, the first epistle of John, chapter 2, and we'll, uh, we'll begin a consideration of a wondrous promise the Lord has given and concern ourselves with those to whom this promise belongs. In 1st John chapter 2, and beginning at verse 23, well, let's begin at verse 21, I think. In verse 21, and read through verse 25 of 1st John chapter 2. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. Well, John, like the book of Hebrews, is dealing much of it with a continuing salvation or the work of God's grace in us during this present time and uh, the outworking of salvation that takes place by God's inworking as we continue in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want us to look particularly at the promise of verse 25. And this is the promise that he hath promised us even eternal life. So we ask several questions as we approach this verse. Questions such as, who has eternal life? And when do they have it? Who has right to claim this promise? And can I know that this promise is made to me? Legitimate questions. And there is a great deal of difference, of course, between wanting to live forever, and you have to listen carefully, and the life that is eternal. When many read the scriptures about eternal life, they only think about duration, that we're talking about never-ending life. And it, this eternal life doesn't end. But that's not all that's involved in this eternal life. Um, of course, in man, it is natural. It's one of the highest instincts in human nature to want to live forever. No one in their right mind wants to die. If someone wants to die, that means they have a pretty difficult situation mentally. And so uh, no one who's in their right mind wants to die. And no one in their right mind... Uh, uh, would want to live forever in the conditions in which we live in this world. We know that death is the inevitable 
end of natural life. There's a time to be born and a time to die. And so that is inevitable for us. We're in this natural life period now. It will end in God's time. Multitudes, though, want to live who have no desire for this this eternal life that the scriptures speak of. It's a different matter than just living forever. Life, whether it's natural life or spiritual life, is God's prerogative alone. No man can create life. I know we have these movies now that seem that man can create life or bring it back. No, that's blasphemy against the living God. No one can create life but God. No one can cause that to live which was once dead but God and he alone. Life comes from God. We know that when God created man, when he created Adam, of the elements of this earth, of the dust of the earth, and everything in Adam was there, including DNA that we now know about. But he only lived when God breathed into him the the breath of life. Only God can give life. I remember, I think it was John Gill reading many years ago, made the statement, one of those pithy statements you remember. (laughs) It was John Gill who said, "If if man could make a living fly, he could create worlds. Only God gives life. No one else. Life comes from God and Him alone. Life cannot be put into a test tube and analyzed as to its constituent parts. Living things can be analyzed. Living things can be looked at. But life, The life cannot be seen or comprehended or understood. We have life, of course. We're physical beings right now, but we have life that is not, in the sense, physical. And uh, the secrets of life remain forever hidden with God and in His power and in His power alone. All life is God's gift. All life comes from God. And, of course, we don't produce life, not even natural life. And it's certainly not self-produced. Much less the life that is, in Scripture, denominated eternal life. The wages of sin is death, wrote Paul in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And John is not in this epistle in any way, by the way, showing us how to obtain this life. But rather, he's showing those who have this life eternal and shall have it. God gives life sovereignly. When we came into this world, it's because of the will of God. We didn't have a thing to do with it. We didn't make the choice. 
We didn't say, well, I'm going to be born in such and such a place to such and such parents and such and such a social condition. No, we didn't do that. We had no choice in that. We were brought into this world by the will of God. It's the same thing with the new birth. We don't bring about the new birth. We have nothing to do whatsoever about bringing about the new birth. The new birth is a sovereign act of God. We don't believe to be born of God. We believe because we are born of God. All is of Him. Salvation is of the Lord, not of man. And so, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, exactly as we're taught in the Scripture. And just as those who live naturally, they show that by their actings. We know someone lives because they move, they speak, they talk, they work, they labor. That doesn't make them live. That shows they are alive. The actings of life. But in no wise do they live because of those evidences. So it is in the realm of the spiritual as well as the natural. Those who have eternal life evidence that life. They evidence now that they have and possess eternal life by which they may lay claim to the promise of life eternal. But in no wise do they live eternally because of those evidences or in any way merit life whatsoever, or new life. John is simply identifying those who may lay hold of this glorious promise and may do so with certainty. It's for sure that those who possess this life that is eternal are not to live in fear and doubt as concerns their possession of it. The scriptures speak of assurance of the assurance of faith. And it is a blessed thing if we possess the biblical kind of assurance of faith. God himself, who is the giver of life, has given sufficient promise. He binds himself to his own word. And that's a wondrous thing. That's a wondrous thing. God binds his whole honor to his word, his whole character. He being holy. He wouldn't be holy if he didn't keep what he promised. He is faithful. He wouldn't be faithful. He wouldn't be the faithful God if he didn't keep what he promised he would do. And all of the divine character as made known in Scripture is behind the word of God. That's why David could say in Psalm 138, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. We can lay hold of, depend on the word of God with everything we've got. We can stake everything on it. God's word is truth. And when he gives promise, and those to whom he gives promise, that promise cannot fail. So, it's blessed if we can lay hold of this promise and realize it is ours. And the matter of relying upon this promise is a matter of pure faith, of trusting God alone. To whom does it belong? To whom does this promise belong? Or 
who may live in the sure hope of eternal life. It is first needful to consider who made the promise. And considering who made the promise, do we have any condition upon which this promise is secured? A promise is a binding pledge to perform something purposed. That's a pretty um, simple explanation, but that's what it is. A promise is a binding pledge to perform something promised. And when, uh, when given, it is the revealing of that purpose. And especially in the Word of God, God purposed what He's going to do from eternity. Then He gives promise of what He is going to do in His Word. And when He says He will do something, it's infallible. It is certain to be done. And only God can give eternal life. He is the He of our verse 25 of 1 John chapter 2. And as uh, John writes, this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. This is God promising eternal life. In 1 John chapter 5 and in verse 11, this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. The promise is always given the life is promised only through the son of god never apart from him only through christ the wages of sin is death the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord as again in romans 6 verse 23 and the son can give eternal life as well. Why? Because the Son is of equal deity with the Father. Only God can give life. Only God can create life. Only God can bring life back from the dead. No one else ever. Only God. Anything else that projects such a thing is blasphemous against the Creator of heaven and earth. God gives life. Only God gives life. And so... Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And what else does that verse say? And I give unto them eternal life. How so? Because just a little bit later, the Lord says, I and my Father are one of equal deity with the Father. And only God can give life. What is the securing condition of the promise? Or if you please, the purpose of God now given in promise. Well, faith in Christ does not secure the condition of the promise. Any more than works could be the condition of the promise. It's only the sovereign independent will or good pleasure of the Father. It is the sovereign prerogative of the Father in what he does. To be sure, 
the promise only belongs to believers. No one else would have this promise. But believing did not secure the purpose of God. But rather, believing was secured by the purpose of God. It is God, of course, who gives faith. And so, you read the Apostle Paul as he goes to various places, and particularly in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. He goes and preaches the gospel in, uh, where is that, Antioch in Pisidia. And we read that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Those God chosen to faith in Christ came to believe. Not a natural faith, not a faith produced by the will of man or so-called free will, but the gift of God that comes in regeneration. And the Lord Jesus, of course, in his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3 this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And so, <clears throat> we have the promise of God. We have life in the Son of God, only by him, fulfilling the conditions of God's purpose. And that which was purposed before the world began, when the Father gives out of this fallen world those whom he shall redeem and bring to God through the blood of his cross and through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the preaching of the gospel of the Son of God. And this gift of eternal life is given to those to whom the Father gave the Son them as a gift. As he says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. In the scripture, the triunity of God, the Trinity, the Father purposes. Matter of fact, he purposes all things. The Son accomplishes the will of the Father, even in eternity, even before the world. In eternity, the Father uh, purposes, the Son then brings creation into being. It's the Father's purpose. The Son is bringing creation into being. As in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without him not anything made that was made. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit perfects the work in creation, as we have in Genesis chapter 1, and in salvation he applies it to those the Father gave to the Son to redeem and bring to God. So that we have there uh, the work of the Father who purposes the Son, who accomplishes the will of the Father, the Holy Spirit, who, who uh, uh, appropriates that to us, and uh, it's he who brings to pass, in finality, the call that brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ, or the effectual call, as uh, we would speak of it. And so, I, I think it, uh, if I remember correctly, William Hendrickson put it this way, the Father thought it, 
The Son bought it. The Spirit wrought it. <laughs> and so we have the triunity of God in all of God's works, and particularly then also in salvation. Those whom the Father gave the Son were bound up with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity before ever there was light commanded to uh, carry its vastness across the universe. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That, of course, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. And uh, those who were chosen are given as the gift of the Father to the Son. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast down. I cast out, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. In John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. So in order to redeem us, in order to bring us to God, the Son of God must take upon him flesh and blood, our humanity. And then, being made flesh and blood, he was to live and did live the perfect life of obedience which no one else could do. He, who was without sin in himself, committed no sin ever. So that his perfect obedience was in place. And being perfectly obedient, he could put himself into the position we belonged. The wages of sin is death. He could pay the full price to God's justice in order to redeem us from all sin, through which he secured eternal life to all those given him in that wondrous exchange of the gift of the Father given to the Son, and the Son now redeeming those given to him, bringing them to the Father. And so, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit was given to call effectually those the Father gave the Son to redeem, through whom the word of Christ is taken to the renewed heart. When one comes to believe on Christ, when come, one comes as a poor and needy sinner to trust him and look to him and rest in him alone. That's because God has been gracious, merciful to them. He has called them by his Holy Spirit. Just as Paul could say in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. All those who are effectually called, this is because God by his Spirit does a renewing work, gives new life. They have then hearing hearts, if you please. They hear the word of God like they never heard it before. They hear it in the reality of what the Lord said, He that heareth my word 
and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And so, this life is the free gift of God. Our union to Christ by faith, our knowledge of the Son and the Father in the Son is not the cause of our eternal life. It's the essence of it. The essence of our life is this, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou sent, as the Lord said in John chapter 17, verse 3. Then our faith, just as that life which is eternal comes, is the free gift of God. The only faith that is saving is the gift that comes by God's grace. And that gift that brings us actually to know the Son of God. To be able to rely only upon Him and trust Him. Giving up all thought of any merit on our part. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This faith can only come by God's grace. There's nothing in us by nature that can produce it. Nature can produce a kind of faith, but not a saving faith. Nature can produce a, a kind of faith that uh, is based upon outward things, just as the Lord said in John chapter 2, uh, to some who saw his miracles and says he believed that he didn't commit himself to them. He wouldn't do so. Because their faith was based upon outward things, sight, even his own miracles, but was not based upon the work of God that caused them to behold who he was and come to him as needy sinners and trust in him alone. If faith were by man's will, even his so-called free will, it would be as much a human effort as any other work. The scriptures are as plain as they can be that it's not the will of man. It's the will of God. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That, by the way, is the verse that changed all of my whole theology. <laughs> I remember this day, uh, Roger Lackey, my dear friend and pastor at the time, sitting at my kitchen table with our Bibles open, me trying to show him that salvation came because of the free will of man that <laughs> came to Christ. And uh, Roger... Just taking me verse after verse, showing me the context where, no, that's not taught there. And when I got to John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, I said, see, as many as received him. That's free will, isn't it? As many as received him. Them gave me power to become the sons of God, even to them believe on his name. You know what Roger did? I think I've probably told you before. He moved my finger one verse. Didn't say a word. Not a word. He took my finger. He moved it one verse. And I read that for the first time. I don't mean it was the first time I ever intellectually read it. I heard it for the first time. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Salvation is of him alone, not of human will, not of human works. Our reliance upon and clinging to Christ only, our dependence upon him and him crucified and turning from all sin and self-effort, that's the very nature of eternal life. You remember the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. You see, Christ is life eternal. He is called in 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, that eternal life which was with the Father and was us. He is that eternal life. And if you and I have life eternal, this is where it's found in John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and following. And this is the record that God hath given it to us eternal life. And where is this life? <laughs> this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He that hath the Son hath life. You see, he is our life. Christ is our life. He's called our life in Colossians chapter 3. The life we have is the life of Christ in us. What Paul say? Christ in me. The hope of glory. This is eternal life, not Simply an unending duration. But Christ himself. But if that eternal life is already in possession, which it is, those who are saved by God's grace have eternal life now in this world, not simply later. And if that's the case, it's already in possession, why is it still set before us as a promise? It's given in promise here. This is the promise that he hath promised us. Even eternal life. Well, because, you see, there's a future as well as a present aspect to this promise. There's a future of it. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ says, he, or the scripture says, he that hath the Son hath life. Now. And, uh, even that well-known verse in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord Jesus says in John 5, 24, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath eternal life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. Have it now. It's already in possession now. But there's a future aspect to it. We read that in Luke chapter 13 this morning. You remember when one comes and says, Lord, are the few that be saved? He says, strive to enter in at the straight gate. Then he goes to the inn 
He talks to Peter when Peter speaks of leaving all to follow him in Mark chapter 10. And to Peter, he says those who truly follow him, those who belong to him, that uh, uh, all the blessings they shall have in this life in knowing him, not outward things, physical things, but spiritual blessings in Christ. And uh, he says, then in the world to come, eternal life. There's that future aspect as well as the present one. That life which is already begun and realized in the faith of the Son of God is to be consummated in eternity. But it is the possession of none but those who by faith continue in the Son and in the Father. That's what verse 24 is showing us. When you read 1 John 2 verses 24 and 25, let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, notice, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even life eternal. Those who remain in the Son. Those who continue as they begin. Those who continue in the Lord Jesus Christ. One wrote... As surely as you continue in the faith of the gospel, you may be fully persuaded that this eternal life is actually bestowed on you, belongs to you, and shall be enjoyed by you in uninterrupted communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the house eternal in the heavens forever and ever. All that we shall have in eternity is begun now in time. It becomes perfected in eternity. Everything that we have in eternity is begun in time. Just like uh, when you when you were in your mother's womb. Yeah, and you were a person when you were in your mother's womb. And uh, uh, God can say to Jeremiah, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. He was in his mother's womb. We were in embryonic stage. Everything that we would have now as adults was there. It would just become developed. That's the way it is spiritually as well. Everything we shall have for eternity has already begun in time. But it's in embryonic stage as it were. And it shall blossom out in eternity. Then again, who may live in the sure hope of eternal life? Calvin wrote on verses 24 and 25. The sum of what is said is that we cannot live otherwise than by nourishing to the end the seed sown in the heart. John insists much on this point. Not only the beginning of a blessed life is to be found in the knowledge of Christ, but also its perfection. I think that's a really good comment. Remember that the essence of life eternal is as the Lord Jesus Christ said. This is life eternal. That they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Then this life is outworked in the life of a believer by continuing 
as we began. Continuing as we began. Not moving at any time from looking only unto, trusting only in, relying only upon Christ, crucified Him alone. All the way. Never at any time adding the condition of our works or self-effort as a basis for acceptance with God. We're always accepted in the Beloved, in Him. And this is an encouragement to continue by faith. By faith in Christ alone, as well as a description of those to whom the promise of eternal life belongs. Those who continue in the Father and in the Son. This is the promise that he hath promised us who do so. Even eternal life. To be sure, faith, true faith in Christ bears fruit. But never at any time are we to trust the fruits of faith or the works which proceed from true faith. We're to look by faith to never at any time be moved from looking only unto Christ and His grace alone. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Ready to be revealed at the last time. We majored upon that in Colossians. Remember Paul warning the Colossians that they must continue as they began. There were those who were trying to distort the gospel. There were those who were trying to add to the gospel and change the gospel as was given by Christ through the apostles. And he says in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. We never move from him and for faith in him alone. God's work in us is not yet complete, but we are complete in Christ. We are complete in him and only in him, as in Colossians 2, 9, and 10. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And we're accepted in him. We're not accepted in ourselves. Only in Christ. And we're to look only to him. In whom alone we have the promise of eternal life. Nothing ever to be added to him. Nothing taken from him. I still remember. Dear George Gumbleton. George could sometimes say some things. Just you know. I don't know that he was that highly educated as far as the things of this world, but but he was really educated in, in spiritual knowledge and in the, in the things of God, which is far more important than a college degree. <laughs> but uh, I can remember George would listen intently to the preaching of the Word. He would come and make comments. I remember the time that George came and said, we were speaking about not adding to Christ. He said, you can't add to Christ without taking from him. Said, That's really a tremendously un <laughs> a good statement. He understood that. You can't add to him without taking from him. You can't add to perfection. That's impossible. You try to do that, you mar that perfection. Whatever adds to him, 
Whatever happens to him becomes a works gospel. With the curse of God upon it. Don't you give out a works gospel. It says in effect that Christ is not totally sufficient for our salvation. Bring nothing in your hand. Turn from all self-effort. Seek God only as a needy sinner for his mercy in Christ alone. Mercy is in him. And for all who call upon him in truth. And don't even ask if you're one of God's chosen. We don't have access to the book of life. If you know that you're a sinner. If you know you've transgressed against the living God and you're convicted. That the judge of all the earth shall do right and regard to you that God is holy and you've sinned against him. Christ came to save sinners. The word of God, the gospel doesn't come along and say, all right, come to Christ because you're a chosen one. No, it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you are a sinner, he came to save sinners. You're a sinner and you know it and you want to be delivered and you want to belong to the living God. Come. <laughs> Come to him. If you're a sinner in need of a savior, that's where it is. If you're thirsty, if you have the desire for Christ, then God and the Holy Spirit says to you, Come. You may come to him freely. And he won't cast you out. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.